Well, good morning again. Glad to be with y'all. We are diving into Romans uh, for Easter, kind of out of nowhere, but into the middle of what is really one of the most um, one of the most influential chapters, I think, in all the Bible, uh, Romans eight. Though these verses are perhaps often overlooked. <laughs> So let's look at Romans 8, starting at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, everything we learn uh, spiritually is from the, the book, from God's word. So let's pray that we can understand it. Father, we want to hear your word this morning. We thank you that you've given it to us in the scripture, and we pray that you would speak by your spirit, that we might hear, that we might apply it, that we might grow more in you, deeper into our confidence in Jesus, who you raised by that very spirit. So speak this morning for your servants listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was thinking this week, what are some stories that we tell that are similar to resurrection? And then I realized that every single superhero movie is a resurrection movie. Um, I'm probably not the first person to realize this. But, the, but we, you know, all the big budget movies that are made now are all somehow a superhero movie, sci-fi, fantasy, something in this. And almost all of them have a character who dies and comes back. Uh, probably the uh, most extreme example of this was the Avengers Endgame movie, which I guess I don't have to worry too much about spoiling at this point, but there's a lot of people that come back. And, uh, but it highlights something, how pedestrian the idea of someone coming back from the dead can be if we simply read Scripture as if it's just another story. Eh, it's just kind of what superheroes do. But of course, if someone you knew who had died came back, walked in this room, it would be an entirely different tale. It would beg so many questions. See, the the meaning of the resurrection is often obscured. In the church, it's often obscured because it's treated as if it's just another one of the miracles, the big one. The, uh, the, the last of the fireworks <laughs> before the end of the show. Uh, but it's more than that. It's treated, you know, sadly, as if it's just kind of a silly tale by many, even within the church sometimes. Certain churches anyway. Um, but more broadly, I think in American culture, we are... We talk more about death as if it's simply a natural way things are, and that we should just come to terms with it. 
But nobody wants to come to terms with death. This is the problem. No one wants to come to terms with it. The, uh, the philosopher Luke Ferry, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, says that death is the problem that's at the heart of our existence. The problem of death remains unresolved. Death is experienced in the midst of life. Uh, it's experienced in that which will not return, that which belongs irreversibly to the time past, which we have no hope of recovering. Everything that comes under the heading nevermore belongs in death's ledger. To live well, to live freely, capable of joy, generosity, and love, we must first and foremost conquer our fear, or more accurately, our fears of the irreversible. Of course, then he points out that this is where philosophy and religion diverge. But we're urged often to think of death as just the normal way of doing things. Another famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell, back in 1903, over a century ago, urged us <laughs> to live our lives on what he called the firm foundation of unyielding despair, the reality that death is just the way it is, the way of our existence. Well, most people will not accept that. And I think, of course, if someone came back from the dead... We have every reason not to accept that. Instead, what we see, what Paul kind of unpacks in here is first what the meaning of Christ's resurrection is in of itself, that Christ was raised. And then, as a consequence, we are raised physically, but also spiritually. So he points out how Christ was raised and then how we are raised physically and spiritually. Now, it's, it's worth remembering or noticing here in verse 11, Paul is assuming, of course, the reality of the resurrection. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So he's assuming the reality of this. He's not arguing the point, not trying to prove the point. And I'm, this is not a sermon trying to prove the resurrection necessarily. But it is worth noting, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, that there really are two stubborn facts. There's the empty tomb which even the authorities couldn't deny. They tried to come up with another story about it, but everybody knew the tomb was empty. But then the witnesses, the, all these people that Jesus showed up to, all these people at different times and different places, hundreds of them, that met him. It's hard to deny the stubbornness of those facts. So, so it's, that, it's that reality of Jesus being raised from the dead, but also the reality that it's the Holy Spirit that did it. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a little bit vague in the Old Testament. And as we get into the New, we start to discover a lot more. But it is, of course, true that the Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation, calling life out of nothing. It was the spirit that hovered over Israel in the wilderness, in the pillar of smoke and fire, giving shade from the heat and warmth at night. The spirit, of course, shows up in a number of different places along the way. But as we get into the Gospels, it is the spirit who descends on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry when he's baptized. The spirit is always there. 
And Jesus says, I will give the Spirit. He actually says right before he dies, the, the night he's arrested, when he's with his disciples, he says, it's better that I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit. Which is exactly what happens, right? He go, when, he, when he does go away after his resurrection, when he goes away, the Spirit is poured out on all who believe. And so it is the Spirit, who we call the Lord and giver of life in the Nicene Creed, who gives life to Jesus. And who is at work in us. And so it's worth understanding the biblical backdrop of the resurrection. And it, we can't assume that we all understand it very well, but... Of course, all this is to say that it is God who gave life. And I'm not trying to get into all the intricacies of faith and science and all that. That's not what this is really about. But as Genesis describes, it is God who called life out of what was inert. It is God who breathed life into Adam. And called for life that was not merely physical existence, not merely getting through the day, but was also spiritual life. There was a quality of enjoying life in God's presence that we were meant for. This is the very, again, this goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, it all falls apart in Genesis 3. Right? As we rebel and death enters the picture as what Paul calls the wages of sin. The destruction that enters our lives. And it enters first spiritually and then physically. Notice that. They're kicked out of the garden first. They're told the punishment is death if you, if you rebel. So the first thing, though, is they're kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God. And then later on, down the road, of course, they die physically. Death has these two qualities to it. It is physical and spiritual. It is never simply a phenomena of an organism. It is always something deeper than that. Now, many people have tried to guess what life after death looks like. Some folks have imagined some system of reincarnation. Right? Some whole religious traditions have, have that built into them. Many, many of us have a sort of vague sense of people we love on the other side, some connection to them. But of course, all of this is, uh, there's no real evidence of it. There isn't. In fact, all of it really sounds like what most critics of religion have always said, that this is just wish fulfillment. You're just projecting onto the other side of death the things you want to find. Then again, we could say that, well, all that there is is this. This is it. This is life. You're born, and then you die, and it's over. You're annihilated. But then we have to admit that that's, we're actually nihilists, right? We actually believe that there's no meaning in anything. Now, most 20th and 21st century philosophy has spent its time trying to think through how we can create meaning for ourselves, meaning for our own lives. But the trouble is, you might, you might find a sufficient answer that gets you through the day. But how on earth are you going to expect anybody else 
to agree with you. Why would they? I mean, I think we're seeing the fruit of that in our society. It's harder and harder to find agreement on what we should be, why we should be that way. Of course, in its more extreme forms, we, there are simply those who think that life is just about getting away with whatever you can get away with. Might be seeing some of that fruit as well. But the stubborn reality of the resurrection is this empty tomb and these people who met Jesus. So this is not an idea that is wish fulfillment, but rather a fact we can't dodge. That Jesus had been raised from the dead. Uh, John Updike, who was hardly a good illustration of a you know, faithful Christian, uh, you know, he was a famous novelist, wrote a lot of essays, all these things. Um, had, he, was also, he did go to church regularly. Um, and I guess heard one too many Easter sermons about you know, this being a metaphor for the flowers coming back out and some sort of life coming after death. So he wrote a poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter. I won't read the whole thing to you, but this is what he says. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us, seek, let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience or our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. You know what he's saying? He's saying, let's not pretend that this didn't happen just because we find that embarrassing. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And we will either realize that now or will one day. When our pretense is exposed. All of this is to say, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he did what C.S. Lewis said, he caused death to work backwards. If death is working backwards, then sin must have been dealt with. You see, it changed everything, right? I mean, this is what the apostles saw. They saw that death was broken. The power of death no longer reigned. Which means the problem of sin must have been solved. Which means that you cannot come to God based on what you've earned or deserved. You can only receive what he gives. This is why Tim Keller is fond of saying the gospel is not good advice, but good news. It is news about what God has done. It is a gift. You can only receive it. You can't earn it. However fond we are of falling back into the thought that somehow we can work to deserve God's smile, to deserve his approval, the good news is, You can't do it. But it is given to you in Jesus. And that's important if you are already a Christian to be reminded of all the time. This is not a thing earned. This is a thing given. This is a thing received. And if you're not a Christian, also to hear that, that it it is a gift on offer. It is not a thing to be earned. It is a thing to be received. Life. Life itself. 
And so we see that what Paul is mostly interested in here in this passage is how that resurrection affects our lives. And it's sticking in verse 11, we see that that means that we will be raised physically, right? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Life, well, life is not meant to be lived without a body. In fact, Paul's so serious about this, some verses later in verse 23 of the same chapter, Paul will actually say that you will not experience the full, you will not have the full experience of being adopted as God's child until you're raised from the dead. Until the resurrection, you still haven't had the full experience of being his child. That's profound, right? We're meant to be body and soul, not some disembodied, you know, souls floating on, you know, clouds with harps, whatever kind of Looney Tunes version of life after death that we've imagined, right? We are meant to be whole, body and soul. And again, that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one doing it or who will do it. He's working resurrection into our lives. And all throughout this chapter in Romans, Paul contrasts living by the flesh and living by the spirit. And it's important to understand this, right? When he says flesh, he's not talking about your embodied existence, your, the, your physical existence, because he talks about our mortal bodies in a good way. Instead, that Greek word sarks, he uses to talk about the way in which we have inherited a kind of diseased life. It is this disease ecology in which we live, a spiritual disease, right, that is at work through our whole body, written deep into who we are. But by contrast, we can live by the Spirit. Those who are in Christ do live by the Spirit, and it is the Spirit who will bring about the resurrection, This is a divine intrusion into our lives. This is God inserting himself right into the middle of who we are and working to bring the resurrection life out of us. So it's important to see that what the Bible talks about then is very little of life after death. The Bible says very little about like the immediate state of your soul when you die. And it's all pretty metaphorically heavy symbolically heavy. It's good. You're in God's presence. It's not a bad existence, but it is not a whole existence. Instead, what the Bible talks about is life after life after death, the resurrection, when the, whole, when the new heavens and the new earth is created. So one theologian puts it this way. He says, the resurrection is not, as it were, a highly peculiar event within the present world, though it is that, It is principally the defining event of the new creation, the world that is being born with Jesus. It is the beginning of a new order in the world. Our resurrection that lies ahead is about being renewed with the whole of his creation. It is part of God's big plan. But it has practical consequences for us now. Because what we are expecting down the line shapes what we do today. 
right? What you are hoping to accomplish in life, where you think you're going in life, shapes the decisions you make right now. And and so it's strange, right, that many Christians have sometimes twisted this around to make it into something else, right? That, uh, well, we'll put off our hopes for that. I mean, it's it's worst, you had slaveholders who were telling their slaves that, well, they were put here now to be slaves, and one day they'll have that. Now, the spirituals tell us that they took that in a different way (laughs) than their masters thought they, they were supposed to. Good for them. But the point being, right, that they were twisting it. But even now, you, there are other Christians who justify all of our moral, morally questionable choices, our moral compromises, because, well, this is the world we live in. But we are told that we are expecting a different world altogether. We justify our questionable actions, our lack of concern for justice, all the things that are inconvenient that we don't want to deal with. But that testifies to a kind of individualized, spiritualized future that we imagine rather than the biblical view of a resurrected new heavens, new earth, in which all of God's people are gathered together from every tribe and every tongue and every nation where the world is not a, a thing we don't care about, but rather that we are deeply invested. And in fact, we are learning to care for well. The way that the New Testament frames this is that this present age, since the resurrection, is the time for training for the, time, for the day in which we are resurrected. This is the time to, that our decisions are made not by the standards of individualism, consumerism, where selfishness and strife are not acceptable ways of going through life. That sounds like training for a very different place than the new heavens and the new earth. But rather where we are called to love sacrificially to be the kinds of people who are good stewards of God's new heavens and new earth, who are actually loving our neighbors, and most of all, who appreciate and long to be in the presence of God himself. This gives us perspective, right? When I was a kid, there was a bumper sticker. I mean, this was the 80s, and... It was a bumper sticker that, you know, the person who dies with the most toys wins. Does anybody remember this? It's a very 80s slogan. Well, we don't maybe say that, and we still amass a lot of stuff. But <laughs> now we have a kind of experience industry, right? A travel industry. What you've got to do is, is a kind of bucket list mentality, right? What I've got to do is I've got to see new places and experience new things and you know, it's the kind of, it's, it's, you know, FOMO, the fear of missing out, writ large, right, across our lives. This is not just a teenage reality that you fear missing out on things. It's a very adult reality. And you can feel a little bit of that anxious clamor as there's some light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic 
of like, are other people out there having fun and I'm missing out? Like, I know we all want to get out. (laughs) That's fine. But, you know, there's a little bit of like, are other people having more fun than we are? Is Is that going on? But you see, the resurrection teaches us to think about our lives very differently as a chance to grow in what really matters. Don't hear what I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> if you love travel, that's fine. I miss traveling. I like traveling. I like seeing cool new places. I like having unique experiences. I, I'm not saying any of that is wrong. <laughs> that's all fine. What I am saying, though, is when it pushed comes to shove, and we are making decisions about how we use our time, time is on our side. Because we have more time than we can possibly imagine. But not more time than what is given to us to love our neighbor, to show the grace of Jesus to those who don't know. To care for a lost and broken world. Those are the things we won't have time for. There will be time for other things. And they might even be better. I mean, just, just imagine, if you will, a family vacation in which there's no arguing. That's fanciful, isn't it? But that's actually, I mean, we're actually promised, right, that we, our hearts will be changed. We'll be, all that change will be complete. There's time enough for those things. Again, don't get me wrong. Fine, go on vacation this summer, whatever. But recognize that the main calling on your life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your calling. And that is shaped by the expectation that we will be raised to a new heavens and a new earth in God's presence, and with one another. And all that leads to the third point, that we are also going to be, that we are being spiritually raised, even now. Because God just doesn't tell us, well, that's the future, Uh, have fun sorting it out. He gives us the Spirit. Notice this back in verse 9. You have been given the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. And if he is at work in you, you have life because of righteousness. So that Lord and giver of life is working in you to raise you up. And just as death came first spiritually and then physically, so now too life comes first spiritually and then physically. And Paul is unashamed to use the language of the resurrection to talk about the work that the Spirit is doing in our hearts now. And he says, because of righteousness, which is like Paul dropping a bomb in the middle of this, because he spent the whole, the past seven chapters talking about righteousness. I'm going to try to summarize that very briefly. (laughs) To say that this is the very core problem of Romans. Is he, Paul's asking, what does it mean to be a good person? And how can I possibly be a good person? And look, there's a sense in which what Paul points out is if you want to talk about righteousness as perfection, 
That is to say, if you want to be able to stand on your own two feet in terms of your moral performance and answer to God for it, you could try that. It's not going to end well, but okay. You can try it. But it will always fail. Instead, what Jesus has done at the cross and confirmed in his resurrection, the effectiveness of it confirmed in his resurrection, is taken our place. So that he was judged for our sin and we were given his righteousness. This is what we call justification. Right? It's not just the forgiveness of sins, though that's essential and a really important part, but also that we were given Jesus' righteousness. So that when it comes to judgment, we are not judged by what we have done, we are done, judged by what Jesus has done. And we have no part in accomplishing that. None. It is only received. But there is another way to talk about righteousness, which is to talk about the change. We're, we're actually being changed and transformed. This is sanctification, right? The, the becoming holy, where God is actually changing our hearts to make us like him. But it turns out, that's also Jesus' righteousness because it is the Spirit working it in us to be made like him. It is still his righteousness as well. So because of righteousness, because of what Jesus did once for all in being judged for you, and also because he gave his Spirit to change you into his likeness, because of righteousness, the Spirit is life for you. The Spirit is working life into you. This should be encouraging. This is life-changing. You see, look, maybe you're a Christian here and, you've all, and you feel guilty for your sin. <laughs> the encouragement of justification is you are not being judged by that. Instead, you're being called to put it off. And the encouragement here is that the Spirit is at work. There's more power at work in you than you can possibly imagine. The Spirit of God, who called life out of nothing, <laughs> is at work in your life. Who raised Jesus from the dead. So take heart, be encouraged, press on. Some of us are like, okay, I know I shouldn't sin, but I'm not sure it's that big a deal. Right? Doesn't seem like that big a deal. Maybe we kind of enjoy it too. Nobody would sin if you didn't get some enjoyment out of it. Well, of course, then we could reflect, I guess, pragmatically on what it looks like to play that out over time and the devastation on our relationships. We could look at the cross and see the truth about what sin deserves in Jesus' sufferings. But it's also helpful to see here that what dying to sin looks like is living into real life. A life that is full. A life in which we actually learn to enjoy being the kind of person that is actually enjoyable to be around. And look, some, some, a lot of, most of us are somewhere in between. We're like a little guilty <laughs> and also kind of, you know, a little bit want to hang on to some of those things or maybe not do the serious work. 
in the good news of the Spirit at work, the resurrection power of Jesus at work in our lives, is to know that it is guaranteed. It will not fail. Because if the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, you are not that hard a case. However difficult it might seem to get traction, you're not that hard a case. You're just not. Now, look, God may do things on his own timetable. And there are times where he lets us feel the weight of our own sin so that we will hate it more. I'm not saying I know how the time frame works, but I do know what the scripture tells us is that it is guaranteed that you will die to that sin and live to Jesus. Live for love of God and love of neighbor. The guarantee of it is because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that spirit is at work in you. It will not fail. I was reading uh, recently about kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form. I don't know a lot about it. You can Google it later and see some awesome stuff. It's a Japanese art form of repairing broken pottery, in particular tea bowls. Uh, I mean, tea in and of itself in Japanese culture is an art form. Uh, so obviously the, the bowls are significant. And, uh, and you know, t- if you have a, a really fine work of pottery, right, and it breaks, you don't just want to throw it away. So kintsugi is this kind of art form that's built around this to repair it. And the deal is they don't just put some Elmer's glue on it. Just shove it together, right? Uh, they take time to study the, the fractures, to study the breaks. In fact, sometimes a piece will be passed along through several, down from several mentors, through generations of artists. And different artists will study it. And then they will repair it with precious metals. In particular, gold is often used. And work within the cracks designs so that the thing that comes out is more beautiful than the original piece. See, they take what is valuable but broken and make it priceless. And that is what God is doing in your life. He's taking what is valuable but broken and making it priceless. This is why Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. And the guarantee that it will be affected is the spirit that's at work even now. If you have trust in him, he will see it through. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of the gospel. Thank you in particular this morning that we are promised the resurrection. We are promised it will happen one day to our bodies. And even now we are promised that it is happening spiritually in our hearts. Lord, you know even better than we do 
that this is not easy. But encourage us that we have the guarantee of the Spirit. And if he could bring life out of nothing, if he could raise Jesus from the dead, then we are not hopeless. In fact, we know our future is guaranteed. Remind us, assure us, give us hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.